The reading from God's word is taken first from the prophecies of Isaiah. First from the Old Testament, reading from Isaiah chapter 60. We'll read the verses 1 through 9. So 1 through 9 of Isaiah 60. The sermon this morning deals with First uh, Peter 1, where we are called to rejoice even when we face trials. And we can do so when we put our trust in the hope that God gives. And here in Isaiah 60, we have a wonderful example of God teaching his people to put their hope in him. Because this prophecy comes to those who are in captivity, in exile. And the Lord encourages them by focusing on the future that he has prepared for them, for his own glory. So let's read 60, starting at verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautiful my, beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like clouds and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. The second reading is from the New Testament from Matthew chapter 10. And this is where the Lord instructs his apostles as he sends them out. And because the text this morning speaks about facing trials, the Lord in this passage also shows us that as his children and his disciples, we will face trials in this life. We read verse 24 through 33. Matthew 10, 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered 
that will not be revealed or hidden, that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before man, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before man, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Thus far the reading from God's word. David in Psalm 17 speaks about the trials that he met and how the Lord kept him as the apple of his eye. Our text also speaks about the difficulties, the suffering, the trials that God's children may face in this life. So the text this morning is 1 Peter 1, verse 6 through 9. We'll also read the first part of the chapter so that we have an understanding also of the context. Our text begins with referring to what Peter just has written before the text. So we first read the introduction to whom Peter is writing this letter, and then he shows them their riches in the Lord Jesus Christ in the verses 3 through 5. So start in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then comes our text. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Thus far, text.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, the Apostle Peter writes this letter, the first letter that we have in the Bible of him, in order to encourage the believers, the churches. He lists them in Asia Minor. And they needed an encouragement because they had come to faith in Jesus Christ, but that faith had led them to difficulties. They were facing trials, perhaps in business. They have lost business because in family or friends, they lost family and friends. They were even meeting fiery ordeals, it says, and they were, were suffering because of their faith. So the main reason and cause for their suffering was the fact that they were now confessing that the Lord Jesus was their Lord and their King. Now, that does not mean that when our text speaks about suffering and trials, it is only about that kind of suffering. And you know that in our current world, many people are facing that kind of suffering. Very thankfully, we don't have that kind of opposition and trials because of our confession. But the text speaks about various kinds, all kinds of trials. So Peter makes it quite broad, although he's addressing a very specific point. He makes it broad. And he wants to help the churches, the believers... That in this life, as you serve the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be times that it will be very difficult. We meet hardship, difficulties. And the question is not so much, will we face trials of one kind or another? The question is more, how do you deal with it? Or, how do you prepare for it? If you know that yes, as a believer, you will face trials. Yes, as a believer, your children will face trials. How do you prepare for that? In your own life? In the lives of your children? You see, if we, if we give our children, for example, the idea that life is easy and they have all kinds of rights to things, and it will not be easy then when there comes hardship. When they feel entitled to things, and, and there comes difficulty. Then we're not equipping them. Especially when we see the powers that rise up against Christ and, and his church increasing and the pressures increasing. It's important that we prepare them. We prepare them in, in so many things when it comes to having an education, when it comes to being involved in physical sports. We prepare for them, we, we teach them, we show them. So do we also prepare our children for the fact that they will face trials? And that is the point that Peter is making here in our text. In our text, he right away, you could say, highlights the main concern of his letter. He'll work it out throughout his letter, what it means for the various groups of people that he is addressing. But this is the overall picture that you will deal with suffering. But notice that he bookends the, um, 
the fact that he speaks about these trials with mentioning rejoicing. If you look at verse 6, it begins with, in this you rejoice. And then it comes back again to these trials. But then at the end again, it, is, it speaks about inexpressible joy. So he speaks about suffering, yes, but he, he bookends it with joy. Isn't that somewhat odd? How can you connect those two? Well, that is what the Spirit lays before us. How can you, in the trials of life, still rejoice? What keeps that joy alive? So the theme for the sermon this morning is rejoice greatly while facing trials. The three things we want to consider, first of all, that our hope gives insight. Secondly, that our faith needs refining. And thirdly, that our love fuels joy. So first of all, our hope. Our text connects to the previous verses. It follows from what Peter has just written. He says, in this you now rejoice. And that in this refers to what he has said in the verses 3 through 5. So let's just very briefly trace his way of thinking, his way of writing. Peter has said in verse 3, You are so blessed because through Jesus Christ and his resurrection, you have a new life. You have been redeemed from that old life, the bondage to sin, and now you have a new life. And with that new life comes a new hope and a new inheritance. It's remarkable how Peter in this letter makes so many references to Israel coming out of Egypt. And also here you can think about that. They were in bondage to Pharaoh. God calls them out of Egypt. He makes them a new people. He gives them a new hope. He gives them a new inheritance. And they're on the way to that inheritance. Well, says Peter, you too, you have that new life and that new hope, but the inheritance in its fullness is still coming. It is kept in heaven for you. God has prepared it, but he will give it in due time. You will take part in it and fully inherit it on the day when the Lord Jesus will return. And as we are on the way to that destiny, that hope, then also keep in mind that God protects you. You are shielded by his power. So in the verses before our text, Peter has outlined the hope that we have, the destiny of our traveling. It is that promised land God has that secured in Jesus Christ. He also watches over you, his people, as you travel that way. And now in verse 6, he says, and, and you rejoice in that. You rejoice in this, in that full inheritance that already is legally yours through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, but the full implementation is still to come. And that's why throughout our text, Peter comes back to this final day in verse 7, the end. He talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ, that is when Christ will come from heaven. 
and also in verse 9, when it speaks about the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So having outlined that destiny, that purpose, now he applies that to their traveling. Because as you travel to that future, it is not always that easy. There is indeed a wilderness that you have to go through. And to understand the first point that Peter makes in our text, please note that he makes a contrast. As you deal with adversity, he says, you have to keep in mind this contrast. And the contrast is the one of joy, even inexpressible joy, great joy, and grief or trials, sorrow of all kinds. So that is the contrast that he makes, the joy and the grief. And connected to that is another contrast, namely the present and the future. And the present is connected to the grief, and the future is connected to the joy. He says now. That means in the present time. As you go through this life, you are meeting all kinds of trials. And I said already that for those who read this letter in the first place, there was perhaps trials because of their faith in Jesus Christ, their obedience to his, his word. But it is very broad here. So we can apply it to all kinds of circumstances because God knows and the Spirit knows that it is through suffering that we enter the kingdom of God. You, you all have your own. Each heart, says the book of Proverbs, knows its own sorrow. That means that there's no, no house exempt from it. No life is exempt from it. But it's not all the same either. You may have difficulties because of work, and it causes you trials. It may be because of relationships, of broken relationships. It may be because of grief and loneliness. It may be because of unfulfilled longing and desires that you have. There's so many things in our lives that can cause us to, to be challenged where we think about, why, why does God do this? And the fact that the text mentions this, again, shows what the Bible is so often showing, that it doesn't condemn when we struggle with it, when there is grief, when we identify these trials in our lives. And the, the Bible doesn't want us to say, well, pretend they're not there. As a believer, suddenly you have no longer any problems in your life. It's only happiness and glory. The Bible says there will be in your life in one form or another, there will be hardship, grief, difficulty, struggles. The world in which we live says, forget about it. Try to pretend they're not there. Find solutions in your own strength. But the Bible is realistic. What the Bible does, it puts beside that grief in the present something that helps you deal with it. And as a result, you rejoice. And what is it that you put beside the problems, the trials, the grief of this present time? 
It is that what Peter has spoken about in the verses 3 through 5. That future that we have in Christ. Our hope. Without knowing that hope. That in Christ we have been born to a new life, a new hope, a new inheritance. That God keeps us, protects us. Without knowing that, you could not rejoice. Without knowing God's work in Jesus Christ and his commitment to that work, you will not be able to deal with the trials in life. To know that you have a hope and an inheritance that is unfading, that cannot be taken away from you. So the Bible doesn't say pretend difficulties are not there. Walk around them, shove them under the carpet. No, the Bible says put beside your trials the glory of Christ's work. That's the hope that you have. And that gives you strength to go on. The image that the Lord Jesus used when he spoke about this to his disciples was the image of a woman giving birth. It's painful. But what gives the woman the strength and the hope is what is coming, that new life. And once that life is there, then that replaces the suffering that was. So that is the point here. Yes, we meet suffering. I'm sure we can all talk about it in one way or another. Your children will meet suffering. But what we need to know is the hope that we have and the reality of that hope. That in Christ, we are a new people. That in Christ, we have that new inheritance. And that God keeps that inheritance secure for us in Christ and that he protects us as we traveled. Remember Israel as they walked through the wilderness. When they put their hope in God, they would reach the end. When they put the hope in themselves, they died in the wilderness. So we have to focus on what is coming. Brothers and sisters, we don't live for this life. Yes, life is beautiful. So many blessings that we receive in this life. But we don't live for this life. We live for the life to come. And the more you are connected to this life the harder it will be to rejoice when God takes things away from you. The more we live for this life, the more we'll suffer when we lose things. So don't give in to what this world says. It's this life and all the pleasures of this life. That gives you joy. It will leave you empty-handed. Don't even give in to those who call themselves Christians and in the name of Christ say that everything is about happiness. Making people happy. If you only do this or that, follow these five steps or those ten points, you'll have a happy marriage. You have a happy family. You have a happy this and a happy that. Happiness becomes the end goal. No, it is not. Our end goal is the life that is coming. As the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, he says, don't worry about those who can kill the body. Think about him who can destroy eternal life. That's our perspective. That's our hope. 
So when you deal with difficulties in life, yes, they can be overwhelming. Yes, they can be difficult. And we don't minimize them. But keep your eyes focused on what is coming. That promised land that is yours in Jesus Christ. An inheritance that cannot fade away or spoil. We live for what is to come. And prepare your children in that way too for what is coming. In the sense that you do not just give them a simple, shallow understanding of who God is. God loves everybody. No, that you teach them the specifics of our hope as the Bible lays them out. For example, in the book of Psalms, if you look at the book of Psalms and the suffering that is expressed there, always connected to God's perfections, God's mercy, God's steadfast love. Speak about that. The hope that we have in Jesus Christ as we express it in our creeds. That brings us to the second point. Because now, having pointed us ahead and the goal that God has, Peter says more. He talks more about these sufferings, these trials. And the question is, why does God do this? Why do even God's children suffer in this life? And the, the answer the text gives is that this suffering in your life, whatever shape or form it is, is not just something unfortunate. It's not just an accident. No, says the text, God puts them on your way. They come into your life because God has that in his plan. Look at verse 7. It speaks there about refining. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, the testing is like refining. And more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested or refined by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when the Lord Jesus will be revealed. So the image of refining is used when it comes to our difficulties in life. Asia Minor apparently was known for its precious metals, its refineries, and Peter uses that image. A refiner, a goldsmith, let's say, will put gold in the fire. He has, let's say, some gold, and then and he takes it and he throws it into this, puts it into this fire. Why does he do that? Does he do it because he wants to get rid of the gold? He doesn't like the gold, and so he puts it in the fire to burn it? Of course not. It's the opposite. He knows that when I put that gold in the fire... That hot fire will burn up all the impurities in the gold and make it better. So when I put it through this fire, I end up with something better. So him putting that gold in the fire is not to get rid of it, but to make it better. Well, says Peter, this is the same as for you. How God works with you. God puts things on your path not because he doesn't like you, or he wants to be hard on you. No, he does it because he cares for you, 
And he wants to purify you. So the trials that we meet, the hardship that we meet, are his ways, just like the goldsmith, the refiner, to refine our faith. Now, in which way does our faith need refining? What are the impurities that have to be burned away? Well, there are many. That can be my trust in myself. That can be my inclination to think that I can solve my own problems. And God wants to burn that out of my life. And make me rely on Him. It can be that I I like to take what the world offers. And I want to also take part in that kind of life. It can be that I think it's all about me. And as long as I have those things in my life, I'm not fit for eternity. And when God burns that away, you know what remains? My confession, it is God alone. Everything comes from Him. Everything is in Him. Everything is for Him. That is what a text speaks about, about the testing of our faith that is proven to be genuine, authentic. People love to talk about authentic nowadays. And authenticity or being authentic means that you're really yourself. But brothers and sisters, as a believer, the more I trust myself, the less authentic I am, the less genuine my faith But the more I reach out and find salvation outside of myself in Jesus Christ and the promises of God, the more genuine I become. Because the judgment as to what is authentic is not given by myself. It's by the refiner. He works with the gold. And he says, no, not quite ready yet. And he's pleased when it is refined. And it all glorifies him. End of verse 7. It says that it may found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when the Lord Jesus will be revealed, the day of judgment will come. When also we will come before the throne of God, then the real nature of things will become clear. The true motives become clear. And the more the Lord purifies me in this life, yes, and it can be so painful, but the more it will be to the glory of his name. Our God can build up by breaking down. And the more my own self is burned away, the more I am amazed at the grace of God, to his praise, to his glory, God seeking his own glory. So how do you prepare for this? When you face difficulties, when you face trials, to keep this in mind, the initial reaction can be, why does God do this to me? What good is there in this? I lose something that I would love to have, or there's pain and there's hardship. But then the Bible says, 
God is purifying you. It's hard to accept in a time and a society where everything is about self-worth. And we're praising people for the self-worth is so important, where entitlement is advocated to hear about a God who is refining us. When you lose things in your life, that God is at work. When you don't have what you hoped for, when you become older and things fall away that you used to be able to do but you can't do it, you, you think, I'm good, I can do less and less. God is at work. Because, brothers and sisters, as we have our eye on the future, so our God has his eye on that future. As he works in your life today, he is looking at eternity, making you the person he wants you to be when he will dwell with us in all eternity. That's his goal with each one of us. And when we stare ourselves blind on what happens now and here, indeed, that can then become very difficult, very painful. And the text says, keep in mind what God is doing. As you can do less and less things, and you become older, God is preparing you and shaping you to be what he wants you to be on the new earth, in the promised land. That's our faith. So we had our hope. We had our faith. And of course, there's a third one to make it complete. That is our love. Well, that is verse 8. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. These believers had not seen the Lord Jesus, unlike Peter himself, of course. Peter had seen the Lord Jesus, and he loved him. He said it. These believers had not. We have not either, but we love him. So what is, what is Peter saying here in verse 8? Well, Peter is adding to the first two points. If you want indeed have that hope, a life, and see that faith in the refining process of God, and that He is refining it, in order to see that, you have to have love. If there's no love, then it doesn't work. All these things are true when you love Him. And what does it mean to love Him? Well, it says to believe in Him. Parallel in the text. You love him, you believe in him. That is what it means. And believing means to embrace him. As the Belgian Confession says. To embrace Jesus Christ and all his benefits. To make them your own. And it involves your whole person, all that you do. To believe in him means to accept his word. And to let that word fill your life. Drink it. Eat it. To trust him. To love him. To obey him. And that is absolutely necessary in order to have that hope and to see your faith being refined. For that love then fills you with inexpressible and glorious joy. That you know what he is doing 
in your life. No, you don't see him. So you can't ask him questions. Why do you do this, Lord? As Peter could when the Lord was still on earth. But we love him because we have his word. And so we are filled with joy. More than words can express. So how do you prepare for that? When you have that living bond with Jesus Christ every day. When you go to him, you go on your knees before him, you follow him, you seek him, you listen to him. When you sing his word, the Psalms, when you live by what he says, and to show that in your life. That serving the Lord is not something you do because you have to, but you love to. That is loving. That leads to joy. And then, having laid out these three, love, hope, and faith, and Peter ends our text by reminding us the outcome of it all. Remember Israel on the way through the desert? Their hope, their faith, and their love too. So ours as well, but we're not looking for an earthly Jerusalem. We're looking for the Jerusalem that will come down from heaven when heaven and earth will be united. That is the goal of our faith. That is the meaning. That's where our faith is heading towards, directing to when the Lord will make everything new. And Peter summarizes that with one expression, the salvation of your soul. Your soul that is you as a living being. And salvation means it is set free. From the bondage to sin, living in fellowship with God, in an unrestricted, glorious joy. So as we travel, keep this in mind. That's the goal. And it's not a goal that you will accomplish by yourself. It's the goal that we receive in Jesus Christ. Because Paul, a Peter had said that that goal is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We will sing in a moment that we went through fire, we went through water. And when you sing that, perhaps you think of your own life, the things you may go through, the hardship, the testing. But in all of them, he showed his power and his grace. And that gives joy in life. That is the joy of our only comfort so that we can live and die. That he delivered us and he brings us into a spacious place. And that is not a song that we will sing only then when he comes. It is already here and now. So come. Brothers and sisters, let's bless our God with joyful voices. Amen.